Hey everybody, I'm Logan Camden. I'm Carson Brabber. And this is Nerd Sesh. No! Oh my god, how could he do that? Are you on Donate? What? Charles Darwin. Alright, well, after taking a week off from the NBA podcast, Logan and I thought we had a pretty clear idea of what we wanted to talk about today. We were going to look at some early season standouts, both good and bad, and really evaluate their performances in the season up to this point, because a lot has happened since we did our last show. But... Although we will still be doing that, first we have to start off by talking about the biggest thing that has happened this season that literally just went down, the James Harden deal. He will be headed to Brooklyn in a three-team trade that also involves Cleveland, who will just be getting Jared Allen and Torian Prince in exchange for a 2022 first-rounder that they hold that is actually via the Bucks. The most significant haul here obviously goes to Houston. They will be getting Lavert. They will be getting Rodion's Kuruks. They will be getting four first-round picks and four pick swaps, all from the Rockets, and of course, the Nets get the big cheese, James Harden. So, as we look at this deal, Logan, obviously for a team that is in the midst of contention and has a couple guys who are maybe towards the end of their prime and KD and Kyrie, maybe not so much so with Kyrie, but still a guy who has been in the spotlight for a long time. They are obviously pushing all their chips in to win this title right now. This is a trend that we have seen really emerge over the last few years in the NBA, and it seems to be rather normalized right now to just completely compromise potentially your future and go all in right now, give up all your picks, all your assets to potentially win a ring. We've seen it with the Lakers, already worked. We've seen it with the Clippers, remains to be seen if it'll work. So let's just start on the most basic level. Was this the right move for the Nets? I think it was. I mean, when you have a chance to combine three of the greatest offensive talents of all time, you have to cash in. I am. I don't think it's a stretch by saying that this is going to be the best offense in the NBA. They're going to be unstoppable. That being said, I don't traditionally agree with sacrificing uh, your future just because we've seen for so many teams where it doesn't work out. Uh, the Celtics were stacked because the Nets already sacrificed their future earlier uh, by giving them all of their first-round picks. So I don't normally agree with this. I think they are sacrificing a little defense by giving up Jared Allen as well. But again, when you have a chance to get one of the greatest offensive players of all time, you don't say no. You just say, thank you, Houston. Have a nice day. Yeah, I think that you've hit on the key point there. A title is the kind of thing that immortalizes you forever. And that is why I can't really criticize anybody going out there and taking this kind of gamble because the gamble will be long forgotten if you win that title. And I think that the Nets were already my favorite coming out of the East because of the offensive firepower that they have demonstrated, and they have still been above average on the defensive end. They're 11th in defensive rating, and they certainly have some guys who will compete on that end, and now the losses of Prince and Allen are not significant to that effort. But I do still think when you're in contention mode, teams can generally almost always get themselves up to a competitive level of defense, and I don't think that the Nets will have trouble with that. And you are potentially putting yourselves over the top with, of course, the, I would say, greatest isolation score outside of Kevin Durant that we have seen in this entire generation. And Kyrie is right up in that same tier. He is a dazzling player to watch, obviously, in isolation situations, a cold-blooded closer. So the other question that I think has to be raised here is, does this really put the Nets over the top? I said that I already had them as my favorites out of the East, but does this make them the title favorite? Uh, in the East, I think so. Personally, I'm going to still stick with the Boston Celtics because I'm a madman um, and I'm really high on them this season. I think Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are taking that leap. But I think out East right now with this offensive ability, I don't think there's anybody out East that has the defense to stop this group. Uh, I would say that I am still go with the Lakers out West as well just because I'm not betting against LeBron and AD. They're unstoppable in that same right. Carson, do you think that they're clearly title favorites? I do not, actually. I think that they are clearly favorites out of the East. I think you are kind of a madman, as you say, to still take the Celtics. But I am a firm believer that overwhelming talent is not what wins you a title. It is obviously a key component. You have to have great players or else you're not in the discussion. But there is an element of synergy that is as crucial, if not more, than just the amount of great names that you have on your team. And the Nets have accumulated maybe the greatest sets of name of this generation, rivaling, I would say, the peak Warriors when they added Kevin Durant, just because when your third guy is Kyrie Irving, I think that he is a more dazzling star, truly elite on his own merits player than maybe even a Clay Thompson, although, of course, a guy like Thompson maybe drives winning more. And I think that that is the variable that is going to be key with this team. You're putting together three of the most transcendent offensive players of this generation. They are also guys who all prefer to operate out of isolation. And 
that to me diminishes the value of these other guys because we know Harden will not move without the ball. We're not going to see James Harden cutting. We're not going to see James Harden shooting a bunch of spot up catch and shoot threes. And the exact same thing goes for Kyrie. KD is the only one who has that bit of malleability in his game. And KD is the one who, when it comes down to it, I would want with the ball in his hands above everybody else. So I do think that there are somewhat diminishing returns to this level of offensive talent compiled in this way. This is not a Golden State Warriors team where everybody was willing to move without the ball, where everybody was an incredible catch-and-shoot guy. And yes, Harden and Kyrie can be that, but they won't, and we know that. And that is not the system that is going to be in place here in Brooklyn. So, unless we see a fundamental change in these guys, which I do not expect... I don't know if I can take them over a team like the Lakers that is truly elite defensively, and we know that to be the case, that also has a number of incredibly talented players individually that to me still has maybe the more intimidating duo than Durant and Harden. I actually think that I would take AD and LeBron as a tandem over those two because night in, night out, we know that they're going to produce on both ends. And I think that they have role guys who have really clearly defined roles and can produce at a high level. So do you have concerns about just how this offense flows, how much they're going to have to stagger minutes, how they're going to have to work around these guys' preferences and how they like to play. More than on-court issues, I think my biggest problem with this, Carson, is the, I guess, ego issues. Uh, Kyrie, KD, and Harden are infamous for their off uh, their off-court antics, especially Kyrie of recent, Harden this year with what he has done uh, trade-wise, and KD just getting on social media. I... I just have an issue maybe of what this what this does to the locker room. I don't know if all of these guys, not even on the floor, can they be team players off of the floor? I'm interested to see how they gel on and off, but off the court is a bigger issue to me than on. And that's an interesting point because obviously this is something that they have all chosen. James, Hor- James Harden forced this to happen. It is clearly at the top of his list, but wanting to do something and then actually being able to adapt to those circumstances and thrive and be happy with that, those are two very different things. And I think that we've already seen that with Kyrie, who talked about how excited he was to be in Brooklyn and all this, and now obviously is already super discontent and is talking about apparently how he's not pleased with Steve Nash as head coach and has just decided to leave the team and go party. All these insane things because he's a volatile personality. I think that Durant and Harden are also potentially two volatile personalities, and that matters. I go back to this example a lot, but if you look at the 04 Lakers, one of the most talented teams that we've ever seen assembled, because obviously you have Kobe and Shaq both essentially at the peak of their powers, and you add into that mix an older Gary Payton and Carl Malone, who were still really productive players at that time, without really losing anything from your core of the previous seasons when you had three-peated and then 2003 lost in uh, lost before the finals, but you return with this more talented roster And things fall apart because the talent doesn't gel and the personalities don't gel. That's what happens in basketball. It is not an equation of let's get the most talented guys on the same team, especially when their basketball skill sets don't complement each other and, as you mentioned, their personalities. So the overwhelming talent to me, they're going to be great. They're going to be a great basketball team, especially because I do think that they can still hold up defensively, although we'll see because the lack of rim protection now is a little bit more concerning. But... I don't know, man. The Lakers seem like they love each other. They complement each other. And I would rather bet on that. Let me take it a step further then, Carson. If this, if things don't go well, if they don't gel right, who's the odd man out? I think it's Kyrie. I think it has to be Kyrie. To me, that's not really a difficult decision because what does Kyrie do for me that James Harden can't? I would say really nothing effectively. You're talking about guys who have similar skill sets, similar value to the team, except Harden is more of a playmaking engine. He's a guy who I would rather have facilitating, and he's also the more effective isolation scorer because Kyrie may be more skilled, but it doesn't matter because James Harden is just an automatic scoring machine who can do it with efficiency because of his artistry and getting to the line and everything that we've seen him do for the better part of a decade now. So I think it has to be him. KD is playing exceptional basketball right now, almost under the radar. He's averaging, I think, 30, 10, and 6 or something ridiculous like that and is having some monster performances and looks really good. I don't know if he looks 100% like himself from before the injury, but pretty darn close. So it's an incredible combination of talent, but there are, to me, inevitably concerns about how it all gels. So... If you thought we were done, you thought wrong because we have another update to this deal, Logan. 
And now there is a fourth team involved. The Indiana Pacers will actually be the team acquiring Karis LeVert with Victor Oladipo going to the Houston Rockets. A very intriguing move from both of these sides. Let's start with the Rockets because they are obviously really more involved in this deal overall. Was this the right move for them? And what do you feel specifically about the Oladipo acquisition here? I don't like it. I would have rather taken Levert at this point, honestly. Uh, Oladipo, all of his injury issues. Uh, in, I don't know. He didn't really look like he... He had been struggling to acclimate back into Indiana, and I just wonder what that means about him as a player overall. He's, I feel like the Rockets still need more of a secondary ball handler. Levert would fill that well. Um, so no, honestly, at this point in his career, I think Levert just has more upside and more to offer a team. Now, if the Rockets are looking to get better defensively, no. You know what? I'm not going to flip it on this. They don't need an older guy who can play defense. They need a younger guy that they can build around because they're not going to go out and win a title this year. I would have rather taken Levert over Oladipo. Now, for Indiana, I think this is a win. Okay, let's stick with Houston for a second because I actually kind of disagree with you. Now, there's a case to be made that Levert is the better long-term asset, but Houston's kind of set for the long-term. They have their wealth of first-round picks now that I think that they were lucky to acquire because there was a time when it didn't seem like the Hall would ever be that great. And Levert, as talented as he is, as tremendous as an isolation score as he is, and although he brings you some of that facilitating, I'm not huge on him as a winning player long-term. Oladipo brings you more two-way value. I think that he is a more seamless fit off the ball alongside a guy like John Wall and obviously can also facilitate and handle out of the pick and roll and all that with the ball in his hands. So I think that this is an interesting move for both teams. I think that also from the Indiana side, you say you think it's a win. I don't know. I think it depends on their objective because clearly they're trying to win right now. And I sort of feel like TJ Warren already has that fill it up role where you just have that guy who goes out there and get you 20, but maybe doesn't give you all that much else. And yes, Levert, again, has playmaking instincts and all that is fine and dandy, but he's an isolation player. He wants to be handling the ball, dominating the ball. And so I guess he has to be your sixth man. If the relationship with Oladipo is fractured, if they don't feel great about what they've seen from him, I understand. Although I do think this has been an encouraging year. Last season, he did not look like himself. This year, he pretty much looks like himself. Maybe not peak, peak Oladipo, but still a real player who can contribute to winning. So I think it's interesting on both sides, but elaborate a little bit on why you see Indiana as the winner here. So I say this is a win, not because I think they get drastically better, but just because they get younger. Honestly, rotation-wise, immediately, I don't like this for Indiana because they already have a crowded guard. Uh, they have so many good guards. Brogdon, uh, Hol the Holiday Brothers, TJ McConnell. Like, honestly, the last thing they needed, if you're going to go out and get anything, I would have suggested a front court player off the bench. Uh, so I like Levert because they get younger. They have another ball handler who can fill it up. Um, defensively, I think they lose out because Oladipo does bring more value on that side. But I just like it because they get younger. That being said, though, I don't really get why Indiana felt the need to jump into this deal. I'm interested by that. And I guess the reason would be what we heard about Oladipo in the offseason saying, hey, will you guys take me to other teams? Seems like there was probably some truth to that. Seems like he probably was going around saying that and maybe was discontent here in Indiana. So we have that interesting element of this deal. Really quickly, though, just for the Rockets, because obviously... They have been put in this predicament. There was a time when I thought they should not have made this deal because I didn't think the assets were there. Now it seems like the assets were there. So removing the Levert Oladipo side of it, which has just jumped into the center of the frame here, were they right to change to trade James Harden? Was this the right destination in Brooklyn when we heard about potentially a package involving Ben Simmons and Tyrese Maxey? Did they do the right thing? I mean, I think when you can get four first-round picks and help you build for the future, I think it's always going to be the right move. That being said... I love Ben Simmons as an asset for the future. There's just not guys built like him. Um, I don't get how you would have turned that down. Now, if Philly uh, on that side, do you take that deal? Do you think Harden is, would Harden have been the missing piece in Philly? Yes, I think so. Having a closer of that caliber, that kind of perimeter shot maker, I think they would have been my finals pick to come out of the East. And now I think the Nets have firmly grasped hold of that title. I also think that the Rockets made the right move here. And I think that, you touched on it. When you have four first-round picks and four pick swaps, you have now made up the deficit that you put yourself in with the Chris Paul trade and the Russell Westbrook trade where you gave up so many future assets. They had nothing. They had nothing going for the next better part of a decade as far as picks, and now they are kind of loaded in that respect. So that's huge. Now they have a future beyond the John Wall, Christian Wood, Victor Oladipo iteration, which is going to be a good, fun team, but obviously not a contender or anything. So Last thing here on the Rockets, because obviously their roster looks very different now. 
I know that you've been optimistic about their ability to sustain some level of success without Harden. How much does the Oladipo move impact that? Are they a playoff team? Are they just below that tier? Where do they sit? Uh, again, I think that if they can, uh, if they can become, if they can shoot better, because shooting has been the main issue. If Oladipo was the same player that he was in Indiana, yeah, I think they're a play-in team. I think that they're still better than the Kings, talent-wise. I think they're better than the Thunder. I think that they're, you know, better than the cellar dwellers there. So I think a ten or a nine spot really isn't out of the realm of possibility. When this roster is, you have a bunch of veterans who have been there before, who have done this, who are going to get better as the season goes along. And I just think they're still too talented to to miss the playoffs out west. I think they're a play-in team as well. It's going to be interesting to see if this team can gel. We know they've had defensive struggles. They're 22nd there. They also haven't really been fully healthy. Daniel House, Ben McLemore still working their way back into things. Boogie has missed a few games and also hasn't looked great when he has been out there. So we'll see if John Wall and Oladipo can coexist because John Wall, although he's been solid this year, there have been some scary moments where he just has full reins of the offense and is dominating the ball, taking some difficult pull-ups that I really don't want him taking. But the talent here is play-in level. I don't still think they're a top eight seed in the West, but I do still think they're a top 10 caliber team. Although this entire conference, so many of these teams might be interchangeable when all is said and done because all of them are solid at the very least. Now, I want to ask you one more Nets question. Do you think, now in your opinion, that they went all in we've seen in the past with the Garnett trade, the Paul Pierce trade. If they don't come away with a title this year, Carson, do the Nets regret this trade? Well... I don't think we can limit their window to this year. I think it's if they come away with the title, period. If they don't, of course, because then you were just a really good team that will not be forever immortalized in the history books and all that and bring all of the incredible things for the career in an organization that a title does. But I don't think that you can live in fear like that, frankly. I think that they took the right gamble, and I think that we'll see if it pays off. But, man, we are in store for something special this year, and... Thank you to all the teams involved for giving us this incredible boon of excitement here as we uh, begin our podcast. Let's start now with some of the early season standouts. So as I said earlier, this could be good. This could be bad. It could be a team. It could be a player. Who's first on your list? Uh, So we're going to stay with the middle pack of the East, and we're not going to leave Brooklyn too far. I'm going to start off with the New York Knicks. Uh, Obviously, they were really hot to start out this season. They've come back to earth a little more now. They're five and six. Um, And right now, they're 29th in offensive rating just because of how slow this offense moves. It's how all Tom Thibodeau teams do. They want to beat you defensively. That's why they're 13th in defensive rating. They don't have any standout defensive assets. Um, All of Thibodeau's Bulls teams, they never ranked above 23rd in pace, and they never ranked lower than than 6th in defensive rating. This is what he does, and he forces teams to miss shots. The Knicks have been tremendous defensively this season. They're third in opponent three-point percentage. Teams are shooting 32% from deep against the Knicks, and they're not afraid to pull them. When you're forcing teams to shoot threes and miss that is the best defense that you can play um their second in opponents points per game it that's how the Knicks have to play because they don't have overwhelming offensive talent either they have to keep games low scoring that being said though when they go up against big offensive engines like the Denver Nuggets and they get blown out 89 to 114 and uh we're going to get into some players here I think Julius Randle has had a great season this year Carson just because of how Thibodeau has used him he's the guy offensively that being said Julius Randle should not be the guy offensively. I don't want to run away with his numbers and paint this picture that Julius Randle was this dominant basketball player. Now, he's putting up 22-11-7, shooting a 49-35% from deep. Granted, that's very impressive, but Randle is not this MVP candidate. He's not... He's not conducive to winning. Randall does not play winning offensive basketball. That's why he put up 21 points per game on a team that won 33 games. That's why he put up 19 points per game on a 21-win team last year in New York. The best role for Randall, in my opinion, he's a good defender. He's a great slasher. He, well, I'd say great. He kind of just barrels in there and bodies guys, but he's a decent shooter at this point. If the team used him as a defensive five that sometimes handled the rock, maybe a pseudo Bam Adebayo role, I think that's honestly ideal for Julius Randle, but he should not have the ball in his hands. The Knicks really stood out initially because of how hot they were shooting from deep and how they have been able to stop opponents from shooting well from the perimeter. They fell back to earth, though. This team was the hottest three-point shooting team in the league. Now they're 22nd in three-point percentage. We told you it wouldn't hold up. It didn't hold up. The Knicks aren't going to be a really good basketball team this season, but it's not without hope. They lost Alec Burks, who had scored 18, 22, and 22 in his first three games. Once they get him back, you have another bucket. R.J. Barrett can hopefully turn around his struggles. He's shooting 18% from deep, 68% from the line, and 36% from the field. Honestly, Thibodeau, you should be using him more of a ball handler than Julius Randle. Duh, you'd think that makes sense. Come on, Tibbs. But they've been missing Burks. They've been missing Obi Toppin. They get talent back, but... 
this meteoric start that they got to, I didn't expect them to be 500. They've come back down to earth. This is not a good Knicks team. They're they're going to be about what we've seen. They're going to be middle of the pack. I think they win over 20 games. We've seen that at this point. I think they've got a little too much talent with Austin Rivers, with Burks, with how Randall has been playing. But um, they stood out because they started out so hot. But this is a this is a very borderline Knicks team. Yeah, I don't think that they're particularly good at all. And there was a stretch when the defense was so compelling that you thought, okay, maybe they really can be decent. I don't even think that they're going to be decent long-term. I think that they will still be closer to the seller of this conference. If you look at their last three games, they have scored 89, 89, and 88 points. Unsurprisingly, all losses because no way can you win a game when you are scoring at that clip. And in fact, in two of their other losses, they have been held to 83 and 89 points this season. And that, of course, will be the Achilles heel of this team. I don't even know if you can call it an Achilles heel. It's more like an Achilles lower half of the body because it's such a glaring issue for this team. And that's what I think is a bigger issue in New York, Carson. When Thibodeau is running this pace in space, it normally works when you have good offensive talent. They're 30th in possessions per game. Tibbs, if you were smart, you'd be running up-tempo because you can't compete with these teams. When you run into a Nikola Jokic who is averaging a triple-double... He is going to, he's a buzzsaw. He's going to kill you because the Nuggets are just going to get more possessions. When you're scoring 90 points a game, you're not going to win in the NBA. It's, I think this is a, a, a this is a, uh, it's symptomatic of how Thibodeau has coached basketball. I think there has to be a change in New York. Yes, it's going to help keep some games low scoring, but I think the Knicks are going to play themselves out of more games than they play themselves into with this style of basketball. Here's my thing. I just don't think that they necessarily have the personnel to play up-tempo because I think that, first of all, one of the great advantages of that would be if you had reliable shooters on the perimeter who, in the chaos of transition, can actually punish teams for that. And the Knicks, simply put, do not have that. They are 22nd in three-point percentage, and I wouldn't be surprised if we stay at that level for the whole season or maybe even dip below it. And to me, what's so interesting about this Knicks team is Really, the way they were winning, of course it was playing good defense, but it was guys just playing at a level so far above what we could ever expect from them. Alfred Payton looking like an assassin from the perimeter, and even still up to this point, he's shooting 43% on jump shots this year. He was 35% last year. I totally expect him to regress to the mean. Julius Randle was a couple weeks ago at like above 50% on jump shots, and now he's at 44%, but even that is misrepresentative of his skill. He's a 32% career jump shooter before this season, so I just think we see... The meaningful guys who you look at and say, they could actually help this team take a jump. The R.J. Barrett's of the world, the Kevin Knoxes, the Mitchell Robinsons, they have not taken the jump. And so, am I going to believe that Alfred Payton is suddenly a different player? No, and we've seen that. Julius Randle, first of all, I think you gave him too much credit, actually. I don't think he could ever be the sort of defensive impact player. I don't think he can guard fives. I just think that he's frankly irrelevant on that end. And offensively we know what he is he likes to barrel into the bucket and yeah obviously he has some decent playmaking instincts he also turns the ball over a lot because he has the ball in his hands way too much it's all these things that yeah when Julius Randle is knocking down turnarounds and pull up 15 footers and miraculously gets a couple 10 assist games I guess you have a right to be excited about that but he's still Julius Randle he's not really a different player and I think that we are seeing the law of averages make that plain to see so are there positives for this Knicks team yes you are going to be at least decently competitive because of your value on the defensive end, and that is a positive. Austin Rivers is an absolute assassin, and he honestly has been my favorite Nick to watch this year. He has just been knocking down step backs and looks so confident creating for himself off the dribble in a way that we haven't really seen in a long time, but outside of that, you have an improved defense. You certainly do not have an improved offense, and credit to Tibbs for making this team respectable, but they are not going anywhere. They will not be in the play-in. I don't think they will be that close come the end of the season, but you will probably win your bet against me about the over-under for them being at 15 wins because they are already a third of the way there, about a seventh of the way through the season. So I'm going to take us to another team sort of in that mid-tier of the East right now, the Charlotte Hornets, who obviously drummed up some intrigue in the preseason, but I did not expect them to be sitting at 6-5, and five, and I think that there is one statistic that is telling to why that will not hold. They're currently 7th in defensive rating, and I don't think that they have the personnel to sustain that level whatsoever, but I do love this offense, and it's a pretty similar system to what they had in place this past year. It's just they have two more real quality ball handlers added to the mix. There is so much movement, and I think that we see that because they are near the top of every team passing stat. They are number two in passes made. They are number one in assists by a decent margin. They are number one in assist points created. And the reason for that is you have so many guys who can play make, 
who can knock down shots and who are willing to move without the ball. And it makes for a beautiful free flowing offensive system. Very rarely are they not playing multiple quality ball handlers and facilitators and a couple other quality shooters alongside them. And I think that the guy who has stood out out of this group to this point has to have been Gordon Hayward, who obviously got that massive contract. To me, his play does not justify it, but averaging 22 and a half a game on 50, 40, 93 splits and doing it in every way. He is sort of the embodiment of this Hornet system that I'm talking about. He's doing it as a pick and roll ball handler. He's doing it as a cutter. He's doing it as a catch and shoot guy. And although he has been probably the most exciting, Terry Rozier is kind of right behind him as another really impressive guy. He's shooting 43.5% from deep, giving you over 19 a game. And I honestly think his progression as a pure shooter is so significant. And what I talked about a lot last year, his ability to play off ball as a two instead of trying to be a true point guard. He shot just over 30% from deep over his first two years in the league. And now he's shooting 46% on five catch and shoot threes a game. He's a dead eye. LaMelo obviously has been very exciting. He's giving you 12, seven and six on 35% from deep. If LaMelo ball shoots 35% from deep, that is a terrifying NBA player, and I think that we have already seen him demonstrate the poise out of the pick and roll, the kind of full court transition playmaking that you just almost never see. And those guys have been great. The role players besides them haven't been all that significant. Bridges, PJ Washington have kind of been what you would expect. It's interesting to see Bismack getting minutes, and he really has been fine in filling his role up to this point. It's strange to see him, but if your alternative is Zeller, I really think that you're probably kind of neutral to that decision. The only guy who, to me, who has kind of been the odd man out is Devontae Graham. And I think that we have seen, he had such a fascinating progression in his second season where he was given the keys to the offense in a way you wouldn't have ever really expected. And he was actually the one who sort of forced Rozier to take that off-ball role. And he was the true point guard. But you can really see that he's not actually embracing that off-ball role as effectively as some of the other guys are. Over 66% of his threes are coming off the catch this year. Last year, 64% were pull-ups. And Devontae Graham is shooting 29% from the field right now. That's obviously going to change. He's a brilliant pure shooter. He will start to knock more of them down. But he still can't get to the line consistently enough. And frankly, I think that his playmaking value is diminished when he doesn't have the ball in his hands that much, although he is still dropping dimes at a decently high clip this season. So... I like the Hornets. I think it's beautiful basketball. I think they should be a playing contender. What do you think? Is this sustainable, what they're doing right now? Is anybody going to drop off? Is, is anybody going to get better throughout the season for this team? I want to ask, you say Devontae Graham, a really good uh, pure shooter. Devontae's never shot above 40% in a season. He has not. First of all, it's only been two years. Yeah. I would have told you last year that he was a top 10 shooter in basketball because of the degree of difficulty. The dude has like legitimate range where he can stretch it out to, you know, 25, 26 feet. That's a little bit Dame Steph-esque. He can do a lot off the dribble. So to me, that's why even though he was a 37% shooter or whatever, it was a really impressive 37%. And he will certainly get up above what he is right now. But I still do think that it's telling that he has struggled this much to start the year. Well, and even so with his shooting prowess, I think it's inexcusable that the Charlotte Hornets are not starting LaMelo Ball yet. I, I think... At this point, where LaMelo's at right now, I think he is a better basketball player than Devontae Graham in every single facet, except for maybe shooting. I would even go as far as defensively. Carson, you talk about how dominant the Hornets have been defensively to start this season. Right now, LaMelo Ball is 13th in defensive box plus minus. He's a better rebounder than Graham. He's a better passer than Graham. I think he's got a pretty smooth stroke to this point. I think he's a reliable catch-and-shoot jump shooter. He's He's the total package. I just don't get why LaMelo is not starting, why he's not getting 28 to 32 minutes a game. Take it out of Devontae. Teach him a lesson. If you're not playing, well, you're not going to get minutes on this roster. I think the quicker LaMelo's out there, the more basketball games they win. I think he's a better defender. He's a better rebounder. He's just, he's better than Devontae Graham. I don't understand why he's not playing right now. I think that we have seen a really interesting development from LaMelo on the defensive end to where the thing with him has always been he has the tools to be a plus defender. He's athletic. He has, you know, length and great ball instincts and all that. It's just he's been so disengaged. He's had the strangest defensive posture I've ever seen where he literally just stands there with his arms slack and seems like he couldn't care less. And I think he's shown his value as a defensive playmaker already in this league. And he's averaging 1.6 steals a game in 25 minutes. So that kind of tells you that right there. But I, I like this team, and maybe you raise a fair point about LaMelo. The only thing I would say is, although Devontae has struggled to play off the ball, 
I think in his best version, just because of his shooting, he's probably still more valuable than LaMelo, and LaMelo having the keys a little bit more to the second unit might be intriguing. But that's the thing, I guess, with this team is nobody really has the keys. It's kind of they all are sharing the keys to the offense, and I think that it's fun basketball to watch. Also, shout out the Martin brothers for just being absolute dogs and competing at all times. But Malik Monk, unfortunately, is not getting very much ticket all this year. With that, let's move on. Who is your second standout? Uh, it's the Sacramento Kings, mostly because I, I picked them to be the worst team in the West. Horrible take by me. What can I say? But I will give Luke Walton a little bit of credit here with the Kings. He has changed the pace. Luke, if you keep running it with De'Aaron, with this awesome young guard and Tyrese Halliburton, you will win basketball games. Wow. Who knew? If you listen to your fans and maybe you turn up the pace a little bit like Dave Yeager did, you might win basketball games. But I'd like to focus on Halliburton for a second because I genuinely believe Tyrese Halliburton is having the greatest rookie guard season I've ever seen. And I don't mean statistically. I just think ability-wise, how you can play him at the two, you can play him at the one. He is the most efficient rookie guard we've ever seen. And I got some numbers right now to back this up. 28 minutes a game, Halliburton is averaging 5.3 assists and one turnover per game. Obviously not sustainable. I do not expect this kid to stay at one turnover. I expect this to get a little more towards two. For context, though, there are only two rookies who have ever stayed below one turnover per game playing that many minutes, and that is Jorge Garbajosa on the 2007 Toronto Raptors. He's a power forward. He doesn't handle the ball. He averaged 1.9 assists that year. And then Macau Bridges, 2019 in Phoenix. He's a small forward. He doesn't handle the rock that much. Devin Booker does that. He was at 0.9 turnovers and 2.1 assists per game. I mean, Halliburton protects the ball. He's got a smooth, a great stroke. He's smart. Honestly, Halliburton really reminds me, play style-wise, maybe not defensively, of Malcolm Brogdon. He's a smooth shooter. He's a high IQ guy. He knows where to move with the ball, and he's a great passer. Just Halliburton has blown me away, and I was not in love with the pick initially, so I apologize, Tyrese. He looks like he could win Rookie of the Year this year. Now, when there's good, there's also bad in Sacramento, and the bad this season has been Buddy Heald, the 72-year-old who just cannot hit a jump shot. 35.8% from deep when you were supposed to be an elite marksman. Honestly, at this point, what we have seen out of the Kings... I would rather that they just start Halliburton at the two. The offense moves a little more fluid. Halliburton is just, anytime he gets the rock, I get a little giddy because he's got such a good pump fake on everybody that he can just get to bite, drive to the rack, and then find another open shooter. Buddy isn't even dangerous at this point. Halliburton is shooting 50% from behind the arc. Buddy's shooting 35%. I mean, when you're supposed to be a marksman, you're not hitting your shots. You shouldn't be out on the floor. That's your one goal. I think Kings might should just move off of Buddy, and I wonder if that's why they drafted Halliburton, so they could get off of him. Uh, I'll give credit to one more Kings guy that has impressed me so far, Rashawn Holmes. He is the only Kings player playing over 10 minutes a game so far that has positive on-off splits. Surprising. Holmes is just such a smart screener and such a smart offensive player. He's a great, he's just a great basketball player. He doesn't fill up the stat sheet. He's only averaging 12, 13 points and about eight boards this season, and he doesn't fill it up on the defensive end either, but he's high IQ. He sets smart screens, and he helps this offense move a little more fluidly. Um, the Kings team just looks so much better this year because they're moving with a lot better pace. Um, defensively, there are issues. I have issues with Marvin Bagley as well with how he has looked this season. He just hasn't looked like he's improved whatsoever. Um, the Kings still have their issues, but they are a much better team than I expected in the season. So they have stood out significantly for me as a Kings fan. The good news for me here is that the money that I lost to you betting against the Knicks, I will make back betting on the Kings because you were too low on this team before the season. And I understand the cynicism because obviously this roster was mismanaged last year and they were really a disappointing team. And it seems that even this season, not many people in Sacramento are particularly content with their situation. We have De'Aaron Fox's dad saying he wants a trade. We have Marvin Bagley's dad saying that he wants a trade. But Halliburton, to me, is the shining star, and he is obviously the bright spot of this season. He is unequivocally, in my eyes, the best rookie in basketball. He is not the guy I would take first in a redraft. But when you're talking about value right now, he's at the top of the list. I think you are insane for saying this is the best rookie season that you've seen from a guard. I think that what Jaw did last season was on a different level from what Halliburton is doing. Okay, I did follow that up by saying most efficient, so we will, we will asterisk that one. Okay, in that case... Uh, maybe you're onto something because I do think that he is clearly an immediate impact player when it comes to winning. And I'm really upset with myself for my evaluation of Halliburton because I got so locked into the idea of him projecting as a lead guard, as the kind of guy who would have to handle a ball and knock down, pull up jumpers out of the pick and roll. And first of all, 
He's been incredible out of the pick and roll, even without having that consistent pull-up jumper. He has just been manipulating defenders so excellently. He has great change in pace. He gets guys on their heels. He delivers incredible passes, and he's a good finisher around the rim. So I basically neglected all of these positives in Halliburton's game because I couldn't see him being that true superstar mold. And I said, okay, I'll turn down a good player in hopes of maybe finding a great player and a guy who has way more question marks. And I was wrong about that. I still don't think that Halliburton... Although he has made six of his nine pull-up threes thus far, I don't feel great about him shooting pull-ups because I think that, you know, he still has a slow, low-release point, and frankly, it's just not particularly fluid in that way. But off the catch, he excels, and there's a reason he's shooting 50% from deep. He's a plus defender. He's an awesome playmaker in transition and in the half court. So regardless of any superstar ceiling that maybe made me a little bit skeptical of him as a top five or whatever pick we thought he might be, as the 12th pick... This is beyond a home run. This is a grand slam. This is a walk-off grand slam, and it is a big win for the Kings right now that is desperately needed. It doesn't make up for passing on Luka, but, but it helps ease the pain a little bit. It certainly does not make up for passing on Luka, but I don't know if the Kings will ever be able to make up for that until they win their first title in the year uh, 21-20 when Buddy Heald is still on the team as a 200-year-old. But I agree with you. I think that the Kings have been fun this year, and what's crazy is... They may still be at the bottom of the West because somebody has to be, and there is not a single bad team in the West right now, which actually brings me to my second standout, which is the team that I projected to be at the bottom of the West, the Oklahoma City Thunder, who are currently sitting at 5-5, five and five, and I don't necessarily want to talk about the quote-unquote big names with this team. I guess that would be SGA and Horford, even George Hill maybe. All those guys are kind of just what I expected, and they get this team to the level of respectability that they need to be at to be competitive in this league. But what really has swung this team and has made them a 500 club up to this point is the surrounding pieces, the young guys who I highlighted as X-Factors before this season, the Lou Dortz, the Darius Baisleys, even the Hamadou Diallus, because really all those guys have been balling. Lou Dort is shooting 44% from three. In no world will that hold because his shot does not look better in any way. It's still the same funky moon ball that to me is just too inconsistent. But when he is shooting 44% from three, it's a pretty insane player just because of his defensive value. And his offensive game is simple, but if he's knocking down shots, it is effective. Baisley, to me, though, is the more intriguing of this young wing pair just because he hasn't produced quite as well this season. He's averaging 11-8 and eight on 39-28 splits, but has so many tools that, to me, suggests that he could really be the whole package somewhere down the road. He's a good shooter. He's a long athlete. I really like his handle. I think that he has some playmaking instincts that he's shown this year, and he is the kind of guy who looks ahead and tries to make the right pass, which not everybody has, especially at this age. And the versatility has been on display too. It's not just off the catch. It's not just creating for himself as a ball handler. He's been used as a role man occasionally, which I don't know how great he is at that long term, but it's certainly interesting. So I am all in on him. He's not perfect. He doesn't have the go downhill attack instinct. In fact, most of the time when he does get a step on somebody, he ends up pulling up for mid-range, which probably isn't the best look for him. He's not the kind of guy who's going to go down into the paint and try to catch bodies or draw fouls. But for a super skilled guy with a seven-foot wingspan, I think you have to be impressed with what he's done. And then the last guy who I do want to shout out is Diallo because I have loved his defense and energy for some time. I think that he has always stood out as an athlete, laser quick first step, and obviously tremendous bounce. He's a dunk contest competitor in the past. His playmaking looks improved, though, this year. He had 25-4 and four against the Nets a few days ago in a really impressive all-around display. And if he can just figure out his shot, that is a real player right there. It's not a perfect motion, but it's also not a broken shot. There's a little bit of a hitch in it, but I don't understand why he hasn't been able to figure it out up to this point. And if he does, and maybe when he does, this is a real team. So... I am worried about some parts of them. I'm worried about their shooting as a team long-term. They're 33% from deep. That's 28th in basketball. And I'm really worried about their offense as a whole because they're 29th in offensive rating. And although they're 500, the only surefire playoff team they've beaten was the Nets without Kyrie. I also wonder why Poku is playing so much. 16 minutes a game for this. I can't believe that. I mean, I am not necessarily out on him long-term, but he shouldn't be an NBA player at this point. No, he is. He has looked horrible, genuinely, in any minutes he's gotten on the floor. Now, I know they've struggled offensively, Carson. I want to ask you, outside of Lou Dort, how have they been so successful defensively? 
Well, I think that they have length. I think that they have smart defenders and they have guys who are really competing at a high level. Shea is a plus defender. I think that Horford is obviously a plus defender. Baisley has the tools when he's engaged. Diallo. So that's another thing with this team. The depth is not exceptional outside of their top six guys who I've really already touched on. I don't love it. Teo Maladon is interesting. Poku down the road. Maybe Muscala is at the very least an NBA player. But they're a respectable team, and I think that a large part of that is because of the defense. So I do actually expect that to remain a maybe above average unit, but I don't think we've seen them be quite as damaged by their lack of offensive firepower as they will be throughout a 72-game season. Well, do you think that's exactly what they're missing? Do they just need that engine? I think that that is ultimately long-term what they do need. I think that they need a real number one option. That's not what SGA is to me. He can be a fantastic second guy. I think that it's going to be interesting to me to see if he's really a true point or more of an off-ball guy long-term in his career because I think that he can kind of do both. But to me, he's not ever going to go out there and get you 28 a game. He's not going to drive an offense to be elite by himself. He's never going to be James Harden, Luka Doncic, and very few people will, of course, but he's not even going to be Trey Young in that respect or anybody like that. So that's the long-term option. That's the long-term hope for this team with their abundance of picks, but they're solid right now and they're kind of fun because of that. They are certainly not a walkover and really no team in the NBA is for the most part, certainly in the Western Conference. Okay, let's move on from the Thunder. What is your third early season standout? So the third guy to me has uh, been Malik Beasley. He has been exceptional to start this season. And maybe this isn't a big surprise to a lot of people. I just didn't expect that 14-game streak that he ended on in Minnesota last season. 20 points, 5 boards, 2 assists on uh, 47 and 42% splits. I didn't expect him to keep this up, mostly because D'Lo and Towns were going to take away some of those touches. There were going to be more shooting touches, but it's not just Beasley keeping his numbers up. He's at 19-5 and about two assists a night. His his percentages have dropped off a little bit. He's at 45 and 39% from deep, but he's just improved as a basketball player. He's a more fluid athlete. He's a tremendous finisher on really big opponents. He's just strong when he goes up to the rack. And the biggest thing, and what I think Minnesota desperately needed, was another clutch shooter to defend depend on in those late game moments when D'Lo and Towns are struggling to find their shot. And Beasley's been that guy. There's a lot of opportunities that have been out there for him uh, shooting from deep, just knocking down shots late when the Timberwolves need to keep games close. Now, they haven't succeeded in a lot of those games. The Timberwolves are 3-7 and seven at this point in the season, but Beasley's been impressive. Uh, he's He's just he's a smart ball mover. He's a great offensive player, and this is just something that I didn't really expect to see out of this Timberwolves roster. Now, granted, I think the Timberwolves drastically need more on the defensive end. This is not going to be a team. Honestly, Carson, I think that this team might be the worst in the West. Just because defense matters, especially when you're going up against so many of these dominant offensive teams in the West, and they struggled on that end for quite some time. I wonder if that's because... Carl Anthony Towns can't defend on the inside and what they could add, but offensively, Beasley, uh, Ernan Gomez, Edwards, uh, Rubio, they have a, the Timberwolves have a really good offense. It's just a shame that it doesn't show up in the box scores and on the scoreboards because they are one of the worst defensive teams in basketball. And sadly, Beasley has not come around on that end. That being said, though, he has continued that hot stretch from last year right into this one. And, uh, I think could be not most improved conversation, but that people should definitely take a look because Beasley is a drastically better player than he was a year ago. I've always really enjoyed Malik Beasley's talent. I think that he just ultimately wasn't in the right situation in Denver because they didn't need really his on-ball creation and they had just great depth at the guard spot, guys who probably operated and benefited a little bit more from Jokic's style of play. But I think that it's good to see that he got paid this past offseason. He arguably could have gotten paid more, maybe deserved even more. I don't know how much he contributes to winning long-term, but at the same time, this is a guy who can do it both with the ball in his hands and off the ball. He's shooting 38% on almost five catch-and-shoot threes a game, and we also know that he has the ability, as you mentioned, to create for himself. He has a solid handle. He's a good finisher around the rim. All these things. So the Timberwolves are fascinating because... Their offense hasn't been that effective up to this point. They have a tremendous amount of offensive talent, and I do think that they will improve there. They have a lot of guys who I like watching one-on-one. Anthony Edwards is another guy who actually his game is similar to Malik Beasley's in a lot of ways, and we've seen his talent shine through, but they just don't have it all together. So when you talk about them maybe being the worst team in the West, it's hard for me to imagine them actually being worse than the Thunder when all is said and done, because I think that one team is more flawed and less talented than the other, but... 
they are going to struggle, and I don't think that they're really going to be in the playoff conversation. I think a team like the Spurs is probably better than them at this point with as fun as they've been, and the Kings may be in a similar tier, but I do think that the three-headed monster, if you will, maybe even make it four-headed if you throw Anthony Edwards in there, of D'Lo, Cat, and Beasley is pretty electric, and that'll win him some games this year. And Beasley's surprisingly good at just drawing fouls. He's already shot more free throws in this 10-game stretch than he did in his last 14 with Minnesota, and he's shooting 90% from the line right now. He's he's just an, he's been an elite offensive player this season. Yeah, and... I think that, as you mentioned, we saw the flashes of that once he actually got the touches and the volume of opportunities in Minnesota, and now we're seeing it for a sustained stretch of time. My third standout is the guy who Malik Beasley spent most of his career with up to this point, the star of that team, Nikola Jokic, who obviously was going to be great this season. He's always fantastic, but I certainly could not have anticipated this level of play from him. Averaging 24.3, 11, and 10.5 on 58, 41, 82 splits. It's not just the statistical production and the efficiency. He is driving winning in such an incredible way. And the Nuggets record maybe doesn't reflect that, but they are 15 points per 100 better with him on the floor than off the floor. That is better than any player of significance from all of last year. And they are actually just a really good team when he's on the floor. They are plus five points per 100, which would be basically a top five team in basketball. And without him, they are an absolute dumpster fire. But his responsibility this season is so tremendous. Everything goes through him. He has one and a half times as many elbow touches as anyone else in basketball. He has the second most touches overall. And he actually has seven more touches per game than when he led the league in that category last year. And I think that his scoring is where maybe we've seen the most notable jump as far as his regular season production. He's always been able to do this in the playoffs. He's just never really been motivated to do it in the regular season. But drawing 6.1 free throw attempts a game, that's two more than last year. He's just clearly more aggressive. Some of this is unsustainable. He's shooting 68% from mid-range. That's ridiculous. But he is asserting himself there. And when he asserts himself there, I think he's the best post scorer in basketball. I think he is a tougher guy to stop out of the post than Joel Embiid because it really doesn't matter how you defend him. You might as well not be there because he's going to be taking a tough shot no matter what. And... He makes a lot of them, especially right now. But even more exceptional in driving winning is his passing. He's leading the league in assists. That does not nearly reflect his value, though, because it's the kind of looks that he creates for people where so many wide-open layups, and this is what I love about watching the Nuggets, besides the incredible Murray-Jokic show that drives a lot of this offense, there's a completely different dimension, which is just dudes whirling around Jokic at all times as he's out of the high post and him just having a third eye somewhere where... He knows where every cutter is, and guys move without the ball, and they cut better than anybody else because of that. Gary Harris, Will Barton, MPJ, Compasso, these guys are really good cutters. Gary Harris is 99th percentile as a cutter this season, obviously small sample size, but I just think that reflects that Jokic doesn't just drop dimes. He takes incredible risks, throws balls into tight windows, and delivers them. He can make, obviously, every kind of pass. He makes the full-court passes that we don't see anywhere else. He makes incredible bounce passes, touch passes, literally everything. So that's, to me, why I'm not really that worried about the 4.2 turnovers a game from him. That'll go down. And also, it's because he's taking risks to create higher percentage looks. He's not just swinging a ball to the wing and a guy hits a three. He's saying, okay, this is a kind of crowded paint. I see an angle that I want to attempt. I see a sliver of a gap, and I'm going to try to put the ball in there. And more often than not, he does because he's maybe the best passer in basketball and also, as I said, maybe the best post scorer. So when this team has their best guys out there, if you just look at their lineup of Barton, Millsap, Harris, Murray, and Jokic, that has a 131.6 offensive rating in over 100 minutes. Now, the best of all time is like 116, but that's a legitimate sample size. That's over two full games of basketball where they're producing at that level. So he is unreal right now. I think he would be the MVP. Now, if they finish below 500, he can't be. That goes against my principles, but I do think they'll get better and he is honestly the sole reason for that because everyone is so much better just because he exists and plays basketball like he does at the level he does. Well, this guy's not going to toot his own horn, but I will for him. He picked Jokic for MVP last season. He was a little early to the party. Uh, I think he's the front runner clearly out of anyone. Now, it's funny though to me, Carson, that you say that he hasn't been motivated. I don't even think it's a motivation thing. It's out of necessity. Like the Nuggets are going to need a superhuman performance out of Jokic nearly every night to make the playoffs. Their defense has been so porous this season that Jokic has to put up these numbers to win, which is why I think 
He's the MVP. No other team depends on an offensive guy in this league more than the Denver Nuggets. Jamal Murray has disappeared at certain points this season where he did that last year. We expected to carry over from the playoffs, and it really hasn't. Yes, he's had his games, but it's been streaky. Jokic has been consistent every single night, and the Nuggets have needed it. You're correct. Maybe motivation wasn't the best way to put it. What I just mean is in previous regular seasons, he's coasted because they haven't needed him to be the best version of himself every night. And then we see, once we get to the playoffs, oh my God, that guy's clearly a top 10 player in basketball. It doesn't matter if he scores 20 a game in the regular season because he can score 25 like that. And he drives offense in a way that it's almost unfathomable that a big man can because we see the priority everywhere is let's get the big guards, the kind of ball handlers who can dominate the ball and facilitate at a high level. Great pick and roll guys, Lucas, Hardens. LeBron's and there's this one guy who is so exceptional that he can actually make an offense elite out of the post we have never seen that from a big man Kareem couldn't do that Kareem needed perimeter shot makers Shaq couldn't do that he needed perimeter perimeter shot makers you have a guy who is your point guard who can be your closer who can be a sharpshooter who can be the best post scorer in basketball who is in some ways a better facilitator than a Luka or a LeBron because of the kind of looks that he creates and the fact that he demands so much attention as a scorer out of the post. He's like nothing that we have ever seen. So yes, I was a year earlier with the MVP pick, but I really hope that it's right this year because I will still be able to flex that more than almost anybody else because I picked it at some point. Is Nikola Jokic the best offensive player in basketball? Ooh, that is a really good question, Logan. That is... I mean, with the way he's been playing this season, I would say so... But I actually think that long-term, it might be Luka. And of course, you always have to put LeBron in that conversation inevitably. But right now, man, I might have to say so. No one else, obviously, and part of this is positionally and skill set-wise, no one else could do this. No one else could drive this roster to this level just because no one else incentivizes movement like this. It's just, it's like nothing else in basketball. He's a unicorn. He is truly a unicorn. It's an overused phrase, but... If it applies to anyone, it applies to Jokic, and yet he actually doesn't get that term because he's not KP, and KP very, very tall, even taller than Jokic. Okay, that's enough of the Denver Nuggets segment of the show, but of course we had to have something. What do you have next, Logan? No, we're actually not done with the Denver Nuggets portion of the show because I'm bringing up a former Nugget right here. Uh, my next standout is Jeremy Grant, and I think... Him or Christian Wood, they have to be the front runners for most improved player this season. Uh, it's been crazy the leap that he's taken. Obviously, that comes with opportunity because in Detroit, he's going to be able to handle the rock. He's going to be able to be the guy more. And it's been impressive. 25 points per game, six boards, uh, a little under two assists, 46 uh, and 37% clips. Uh, it's been crazy how drastically he's improved. He's a way better finisher than I expected. Now, he's a little janky when he gets to the rim. I don't really like his bag and how he finishes, but... He gets it done. He gets his buckets when he needs to. He gets fouled. He draws about six a night, and he's shooting great from there, 86% from the line this season. He's, he's got an improved handle, and he's a decent shooter. Now, I think there is a bigger issue in Detroit uh, than is just uh, their lineup. I think, that, actually, no, it is their lineup. It's, it's like a misuse of personnel. They're paying Blake Griffin an exorbitant amount of money, and Blake shouldn't be out there. I hate saying that. They should be running Jeremy Grant at the four, because of how much he has the ball in his hands, it allows you to keep staying with the five because I don't think Grant can defend fives. You start Sadiq Bey at the three. Now, Bey has not had a tremendous season from the field overall. He's shooting 37%, but he's a marksman. He's shooting 44% from deep from behind the arc, and he's shooting 44% on catch-and-shoot threes. Ten points per game, four boards. When Blake is out there, who is shooting 29% from deep this season, 31% on catch-and-shoot threes, all of those opportunities that Grant is going to create, that Killian Hayes is going to create. Also, Killian Hayes probably shouldn't be out there. He's looked pretty bad this season. Maybe Derrick Rose should be getting the nod. Either way, more shooters, more floor spacing equals more opportunities for Grant to get good shooters the ball and get more buckets. Blake out there is a, he's a net negative at this point. Blake is just, he's bad. And I know when you're paying a guy that much money, you want to get something out of him. Blake shouldn't be starting. It is, it's worse for the Pistons to have Blake out there. They, Sadiq Bey needs to be getting these minutes because it just equals more winning, more three-point shots. It's easier. Uh, either way, Grant has been impressive this season. I didn't think he had this in him in Denver. He didn't handle the rock. That wasn't his role. He was a defensive wing. He's still great on that end, and uh, that is shown in Detroit. But uh, outside of the misuse of personnel, Grant has been well. Detroit needs to change things up to make Grant even better because I think that 1.9 assists per game could skyrocket if they let him handle the rock a little more and if they get him more shooters. He is 
maybe the most fascinating 25-point-per-game scorer that I can remember because obviously this is not something that I ever saw coming. When you watched him in Denver, there was a stretch in the playoffs where maybe his creation one-on-one was a little bit intriguing, but I never expected anything like this. And I think that you're right. He is improved across the board. The handle, the pace with which he plays, he takes his time and he kind of looks like a seasoned bucket out there, which is really interesting. But it's not just what he does handling the ball, which I think has been impressive, and he does get downhill, and you're right, he is a strange finisher, but a good one. And It's also what he does off the ball. He attacks closeouts well when he catches the ball, and he is shooting 39% on almost six catch-and-shoot-three attempts per game, and we know that when it comes to winning time, he's a real plus defender as well. So Detroit is a disaster. Jeremy Grant would not be scoring 25 points per game anywhere else, obviously, but kudos to him because I certainly did not see this in the cards. I think you make a good point about Blake because, to me, In some ways, this might sound a little strange, but Grant and Griffin kind of can fill similar roles. Now, Blake brings you more on the playmaking side, but they're both kind of these lumbering, bigger guys who seem a little bit clunky, but are effective as ball handlers from the perimeter who are solid shooters. Grant a little bit better than Blake, of course. I wonder if Blake would be better utilized as more of a post presence of some kind, as more of a pick and roll role man to where... You get some of the facilitating, you get some of the finishing, but he's not trying to be that kind of point forward that Grant already is. I don't know, though. Honestly, no matter what, you're not going to get a great offensive level of production out of this team, but good for Grant because I thought that it was a foolish move by him to leave Denver. Now, it really just depends on what you value personally. If he values winning, then it is a foolish move, but if he values getting buckets and being a star, which I thought was a laughable notion... He is at least putting up the numbers to be considered in that tier. Now, I do not think he's a star. I do not think he stays at 25 a game. He still, to me, is too weird of a 25-point-per-game scorer. Like, there's a difference between meaningless 25-point-per-game scoring, say, Zach Levine. Julius Randle. Julius Randle. Well, I would say Julius Randle is in the Jeremy Grant tier, where the 25 doesn't make sense. You know, Zach Levine, it's like, okay, he's a black hole on offense sometimes. He's obviously a minus defensively, all these things. He's scoring just because nobody else can. But Zach Levine is a bucket, man. Like, he has crazy fluidity and athleticism and is a beautiful jump shooter off the dribble and everything. You watch Jeremy Grant, and you're like, yeah, he's a good offensive player, but I can't believe he's scoring 25 a game. So I don't know if that holds, but to this point, I think he's most improved player. I would take him above. Christian Wood, even though Christian, if you're listening, if you heard that, I didn't say it. That was a prank. Okay. I'm going to go with, I believe our first negative standout of the day. And this is a guy who I think maybe is coming back to the norm a little bit more. He had a good game last night, which is certainly encouraging. Kelly Oubre Jr. of the Golden State Warriors has obviously been atrocious this season. He's averaging 10.8 points per game on 35% shooting from the field, 17% from three. The Warriors are nine points per 100 worse with him on the floor. And I talked about how I thought that he was really just not an ideal fit for the Warriors to begin with. And I think that we have seen that is certainly the case up to this point because Kelly is a guy who likes to attack one-on-one. He likes to try to get downhill. He likes to shoot the occasional pull-up three. And he does not do that in the Golden State system. He has very little one-on-one creation. When he has created one-on-one, it's primarily bit ugly, and that's just not what the Warriors want him to do. He has no playmaking value, just is really one of the worst passers in basketball, and he has no real mid-range game. So when it comes to, okay, Steph's not on the floor, or Steph is on the floor, but he's double teamed. Somebody else needs to go out and get a bucket in isolation. Andrew Wiggins is the obvious choice 10 times out of 10, so Oubre doesn't have value there, which means he is basically being relegated to a textbook 3 and D role. 44% of his shots are coming from deep, and he's making... 24% of his corner threes, the really most efficient shot in basketball because obviously the arc is shorter, and 12% of his above-the-break threes, every single made three of his assisted. So he's in this catch-and-shoot role, and he is abysmal at it right now. He has looked for so much of this year terrified to where he is either run off the three-point line and then doesn't really make a great decision, or he literally just is too scared to shoot the ball and passes right out of it, or he shoots and he clanks it. So last game was encouraging because he actually looked confident pulling threes. He was three of seven from deep, and even if there was a hand in his face, he was willing to take that shot. That's great. He's an okay shooter. He should be an okay shooter, and with his defensive value, he really can be a plus for this team long term, but up to this point, you haven't been able to play him as a closer. So I do think he's a guy who is trending in the right direction because there was nowhere to go but up from the level that he was playing at. I still don't love the fit. I still 
really, again, think that he's a guy who likes to create for himself, but we haven't seen much of it. We saw him hit a couple runners this past game, and that's really been his only source of creation off the dribble this season is guy runs him off the three-point line. He comes in and knocks down a floater. I don't love that offense from Kelly Oubre, though. So unless he's going to improve as a pure shooter, it's a tough fit. I do think he'll improve as a pure shooter, though. And then at that point, this is a very interesting Warriors team with another interesting piece who can contribute to winning. Well, and I think you bring up a really good point in the fact that he's been playing scared. He's hesitant. He doesn't He doesn't want the rock. And, I mean, I know how easy it is to get in your own head when it comes to things like that, but you're in the NBA, man. you gotta you got to pull every open look. Now, Carson, you say that he's playing in this 3 and D role, which I think he is well-suited for because Wiggins and Curry are primary ball handlers. In that role, though, should Kent Bazemore be getting more looks? Uh, well... With the way that they've been playing recently, yes, Bays has been a much better basketball player than Kelly Oubre, which is an insane thing to say. He's been just really the more reliable shooter, and that is all this team needs is a consistent floor spacer and a guy who will give effort and be a plus defender. Long term, though, this is the balance you need to strike with Oubre because you are right. He is terrified. And again, this past game was encouraging. He didn't look quite as terrified, but he just has not wanted to take wide open shots, and you cannot have that happening. So... You have to, at some point, have him just have a big game through the first three quarters because you can't play him in closing time because that's not the time to work out his psychological issues and whatever trauma he is enduring on the court out there. He just needs to get going in some meaningless game, and then hopefully that'll be the permanent turnaround. It hasn't quite happened yet. You got to think it'll happen soon, and he will turn things around. So he's an early season standout in a bad way, but I don't think it's sustainable, and I think that he will be okay long term. All right. Let's get to your last early season standout. Who is it? Hey, mine is also negative, and we're going to stick on the wings here. Uh, it's Robert Covington, and uh, Covington's numbers are horrible. First off, six and a half points per game, six boards, uh, a little under two assists, thirty-five uh, percent from the field, thirty-one uh, percent from deep. It's it's just puzzling how Portland has used their lineup this season. Uh, Covington just. I don't get why they gave up what they did to get him because Ariza played so much better in this offensive system. It's like, yes, Covington, I think, gives you more defensive value than Trevor Ariza did last season, but it's almost like Portland just took for granted what Ariza did on the offensive end. This season, Covington is shooting 79% of his shots from deep, and so when you're shooting 30%, guess what your value is on the offensive end? Nothing. Zero. You add nothing to this Portland offense, which... Because Lillard McCollum garners so much attention, if you just have a plus shooter out there, wow, that equals more points for you. I know that Portland doesn't necessarily need more offensive firepower, but if you have it, you're blowing teams out. And like you've like you've said a million times, Carson, they have the personnel necessary to win these games, to win these open shots. Gary Trent Jr. is on this roster. He's a 52% shooter on catch-and-shoot threes this season. He's shooting three threes uh, catch-and-shoot per uh, per game, and he's scoring more on catch-and-shoot opportunities on less minutes than Robert Covington. It doesn't make sense that Gary Trent Jr. is not starting right now because you already have another defender in Derrick Jones Jr. starting. And back to my point on Trevor Ariza, last season, Carson, Ariza's uh, 53% of his shots came from behind the arc, which means he's cutting more. He's giving you more opportunities on the, on the interior. Robert Covington doesn't cut. He just stands out there like, hey, Dame, I'm here. You guys can pass me the ball so I can break this three-pointer. It's been a misuse of personnel for Portland because I don't agree, and you've made this point a bunch, Carson, of starting Derrick Jones Jr. and Robert Covington. And Covington, plain of itself, Portland was 28th in defensive rating last season. They've bumped up to a measly 23rd in defensive rating, and I would attribute that more to them getting healthy and other teams dropping off more than Covington's value as a defender. Uh, It's been an abysmal start to this season for Covington, and unless he figures out his stroke, I don't see it turning around. So you think Rocco is the odd man out? You would keep starting Derrick Jones Jr. and send Rocco to the bench? Derrick Jones Jr. is at least a smart cutter. He's a little more athletic, and he's, he's a smart passer. Covington just brings nothing of value, in my opinion, to the offensive end. So here's where I disagree with you. I think that absolutely the... Derrick Jones Jr. Rocco starting lineup has to be a thing of the past. It does not make sense at this point. I still think that because of his defensive value, Rocco impacts winning a little bit more. Obviously, Derrick Jones Jr. is a plus defender, but he's also, in my opinion, a less reliable shooter than Rocco, and I think that his career suggests that. Rocco's going through a rough stretch. Derrick Jones Jr. is just not a good shooter, and I think that I would rather have the guy going through a rough stretch than the guy who has never really shown that he can do it. But 
I mean, I think that you put it pretty well when you have a 43% three-point shooter in Gary Trent Jr., who's also a plus defender, versus Derek Jones Jr. and Robert Covington, who are shooting a combined 29.7% from deep. Get you the guy who gives you that extra offensive firepower. It has to be Trent. Trent can also do more off the dribble for himself and maybe a little more facilitating. Perhaps that's why they want him coming off the bench, but I don't care, man. Stick with Gary Trent. He's done great things for you in the past. Very small sample size, but lineups with Dame, CJ, and Trent in them in 31 minutes have a plus 11.8 net rating, and I think that makes perfect sense because those are three dynamic offensive players, and in Trent, you have a real plus defender who I want out there on the floor in the biggest minutes. So, I think that Roko has to be held accountable. I do think he'll get better. Obviously, they gave up a lot of value to get him here and hasn't maybe had that all-around impact on team defense you would want and certainly hasn't lived up to the expectations on offense. So we'll see if they figure that out. But either way, I do think it's time to do something. And that something is insert Gary Trent Jr. into the starting lineup. Okay, well, to be completely honest, my last standout team was going to be the Houston Rockets. I feel like we've covered them sufficiently, so that will do it for this episode. This has been great fun. As always, the NBA truly is where amazing happens. Something is always going on on the court, off the court. Harden's unhappy. Kyrie apparently is not concerned about the pandemic and is just doing as he pleases, and we get great basketball every single night. What more could we ask for, Logan? Frankly, I don't think anything. So, I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was NerdSash.